Hi, I'm Karen Elliott, and you're listening to the District B-Sides Podcast, where you'll hear in-depth conversations with council, staff, and community members to take you behind the decisions that are being made on topics that matter to Squamish. Now let's tune in and join the conversation. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast. We are recording this from the traditional unceded territory of the Squamish Nation. Most of the people listening to it will be likely on unceded Squamish Nation territory. We are doing a number of podcasts that look at climate change in Squamish, and the focus of this one is on transportation. I'm joined today by Dora Gunn and Patrick Brewer. So we'll start by introducing ourselves and how our role interacts with this topic. I'll go first. So my name's Ian Pickett's. I'm the manager of climate change and sustainability at the District of Squamish, and most of my job relates to implementing our community climate action plan. So in 2019, the district declared a climate emergency, and in 2020, we released our community climate action plan. The plan consists of six big moves, and two of them are focused directly on transportation. One is shift beyond a car, or to get more people walking, biking, and taking transit, and the other is to decarbonize transportation, which largely looks at the electrification of vehicles. So both of these two large portfolios of action have brought me into close contact with our two guests. So maybe I'll pass it over to you, Dora, and then Patrick. Great, thanks Ian. I'm Dora Gunn and I'm a transportation planner with the District of Squamish. My primary focus is active transportation, so walking, biking and rolling and transit, uh, but I also work on traffic calming and sometimes parking issues when they affect active transportation and transit. I have a fairly diverse background. I've always been interested in sustainability. I studied ecology and then I did a master's in planning. And then most recently I completed the Simon Fraser Next Generation Transportation Planning Certificate. I've worked for a range of organizations, including First Nations, other municipalities and the province of BC. And I've been with the District of Squamish for about seven years now. And I'll pass it on to Patrick. Hey there folks, Patrick Brewer here. I am the Clean BC Go Electric Fleets Programs Zero Emission Vehicle Advisor. Um, pretty long title, but I can explain uh, exactly what that is. Pretty much my role is to support the adoption of zero emission vehicles or ZEVs in BC. And I primarily do that through outreach, education, um, and then of course, you know, we administer some provincial rebates to make things happen. At the end of the day, pretty much, I see my role as a bit of a matchmaker, connecting, you know, applicants, um, i.e. customers with, um, you know, capable vendors in the market that have solutions. And because the province wants to see these types of transactions happen, um, you know, create green jobs, lower greenhouse gas emissions, all that good stuff, they throw in some money in there to, to you know, to see that happen and lubricate the whole transaction. Um, so that is my role. I do that for an organization called Plugin BC. Essentially, Plugin BC is the sustainable transportation arm of the Fraser Basin Council, uh, which is a charitable not-for-profit that does various things in the uh, space of sustainability um, and facilitation thereof. So before uh, joining Plugin BC, actually, I was a fleet manager in the UK for the London Ambulance Service. And that's really where I got my uh, start on the sustainability and electrification side of, of vehicles. Uh, while I was working there, um, 
the mayor of London came in with the ultra low emission zone that really changed the business case for electric vehicles. And being a part of the, the ambulance service, I got to work on electrification of both the facilities and the vehicles, which was super cool. Wow, that's really interesting. I didn't know you worked in London. So did they actually make the the ambulances electrified or or were they did they have to live up to the low emission standards as well? Yeah, so uh, in Europe they got this thing like they classified diesel vehicles in like Euro 4 and Euro 5 and Euro 6. Uh, and pretty much the the ultra low emission zone came in and like all of our vehicles you know, we had a fleet of like a thousand vehicles. Um, half of them would be, you know, sprinter sized ambulances. Um, all diesel, typically older. The the fleet part of the, you know the ambulance service didn't ever get much love. You know, there was always budget available for the coolest and latest you know medical devices, but um, the fleet side we we had some pretty old vehicles, um, polluting old vehicles. Um, and when you know they say there's you know up to ten thousand early or premature deaths annually in London because of the toxic air, doesn't necessarily look good on the ambulance service when you're driving around in these old diesel vehicles. So we, we looked at a number of solutions. Um, we, at the, at, at the end, when I end left in, what was that, uh, 2019, we had electrified, um, uh, not the ambulances themselves, but the, um, uh, the, the pool car. So the ones like officers would use, like, let's say you got to take people to, to, to court or just transport paramedics to a different part of town all those kinds of, you know, non-emergency uh, roles we were electrifying at that point in time. We also were looking at getting in some some electric hybrid, plug-in hybrid ambulances, uh, but that it was uh, it was it was maybe still too early back then. Wow, that's super interesting, uh, and really really interesting to know that they even ambulances were not. Uh... Yeah. So, uh, yeah, ambulances weren't exempt from the exactly. uh, from 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 the U.S. Uh, from the ultra low emission zone. Um, but at the uh, that I mean, that just took some negotiating. Essentially, uh, initially they weren't. Um, but then after some some negotiating, there was a mem uh, memorandum of understanding, an MOU, to say that we won't actually pay the fine, but all the money that would be spent on paying the fine is going to be put in a special bucket to uh, lower the emissions of the fleet. So. Okay, kind of like a swear jar, I guess. Exactly, it's kind of like a swear jar, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, so Dora, I'm gonna hand it back over to you. And a large part of your portfolio is transit in Squamish. And could you please tell us a little bit more about the uh, the different activities you are working on to continually improve transit in Squamish? Sure. So uh, like many communities in BC, our transit system is a partnership with BC Transit and a local operator. Uh, we have eight conventional buses in our system and then three handy dart vehicles. And we run, we run uh, five routes year round and then one route seasonally. Uh, the system is funded through a combination of provincial funding, property taxes and fare revenue. It's free for kids 12 and under to ride transit. And we also have a free summer weekends program for all riders on all routes. For those that are new to transit, we have a printed rider's guide that you can pick up on the bus or at Municipal Hall, uh, as well as a great online service called Next Ride that helps riders to see where the buses are in real time, uh, which helps to plan your trips accordingly. I use that all the time. I find it really, really handy just to know, <laughs> just that, um, just knowing that the bus is coming, I find 
<laughs> makes it a little easier to wait. So I, I personally really appreciate the online tool. Yeah, I was really, oh, sorry, sorry. And I was really excited when that online tool came out. It's just so handy to be able to plan how many minutes it takes to get to your bus stop and know that your bus is going to be there when you get there. It's a, it's a really, really great tool. Absolutely. So what are the district's plans or do we have any plans or do we even have the jurisdiction to improve regional transit? Right, so regional transit is a huge priority in this area for residents of Squamish as well as residents up and down the Sea of Sky corridor. And there's a variety of reasons for that. So things like access to health and recreation services, reducing congestion on the highway, lowering our GHG emissions. Um, BC Transit, we worked with BC Transit to study the issue back in 2017 and BC Transit wrote a report that's actually available on their website for anyone who's interested. The real stumbling block at this time is funding. Um, so it's hard to run a regional transit system based purely on property taxes, um, at least from the from the local government contribution side. And so we're working with the province to try and figure out how to address that. At this point, the province has indicated that it's going to revisit the issue in the coming year. So we don't have any assurances that we'll have it um, up and running, you know, next year or the year after, but at least it's something that's still in the works. That's great to great to hear. It is a is a priority both at the local and provincial level. Personally, it would be it would be so handy just to be able to take the bus to to Whistler or to Vancouver. I think there would be huge market for it. Yes, I agree, absolutely. So the other big move that we have is so one is active transportation and transit, and the other one is EVs. So Patrick, we're lucky to have you on board today as an EV expert. Could you just start by giving us a little bit of background on maybe even start with the difference between an EV, uh, PHEV and hybrid and even an internal ICE or an internal combustion engine? For sure. I mean, there's just so many abbreviations and I don't think really the, the industry has really agreed or especially internationally on like which ones they're going to be using. Uh, it seems like in BC, we're, we're starting to hear a lot about ZEVs or zero emission vehicles. Um, when I was back in the UK, we, we talked a lot about zero emission capable and zero emission vehicles. Um, I think in China, they talk a lot about new energy vehicles. Um, but let's, uh, at the, at the, the really at the end of the day, the, the brass tacks of it is there's two kinds of drivetrains out there. Mechanical, that will use a heat engine, you know, powered by coal or um, probably more, uh, you know, recently is going to be petrol or uh, gasoline or diesel. Um, so that's a heat engine and that uses a mechanical drivetrain. Uh, oh, and then you have an electric drivetrain that will use a, a battery and won't use an engine, but rather would use a motor, an electric motor. So those are the, the kind of the, the two core differences um, in, the, in the two different types of drivetrains. So then you have something that people like to call a pure EV or often a EV or BEV for battery electric vehicle. And essentially that will just have only that one drivetrain. It will have a battery, it will have a motor and it'll have something to charge that battery with. And that's pretty much what that drivetrain is composed of. Then you have a plug-in hybrid and that's kind of like a parallel approach. So you can still plug in to the grid, you can charge that battery, you can dr uh, drive the vehicle with an electric motor, 
But then in addition to that, you also have essentially a range extender that's going to be powered. So that's going to be an internal combustion engine, that range extender uh, with a petrol tank, uh, with a gas tank. Um, and that will give you a little bit of extra range. So you'd have essentially both um, options in there. And the hybrid and the internal combustion engine vehicle are essentially our conventional cars that we're used to. The hybrid will generally also include a uh, small battery and a, uh, a motor in there that it can get uh, some of its energy back from regenerative braking um, and stuff like that. Sometimes they're a little bit more fuel efficient. And then of course the, the ICE or the internal, uh, internal combustion engine is just your run of the day standard um, you know, car that we see on the road that uses either diesel or uh, gasoline to, to power it. Great, thanks for that. One of the stats that I read that just blew me away, and maybe you can clarify it for me, is the number of moving parts in a EV versus an internal combustion engine or ICE, something in the order of 20 versus 2000, is that is that correct? Yeah, so if we look at like uh, an engine, an internal combustion engine, you got, they're incredibly complex pieces of kit. I mean, you have so many parts to, to manufacture those. Uh, you have, you know, all the valves and pistons and shafts. And then from there you go to the transmission. So you have all those different gears. Um, and again, it's mechanical, a lot of moving parts that have a lot of wear and tear um, versus electric vehicles uh, with the electric drivetrain. The electric motor, the very, very basic ones are, they only have three parts, a stator, a rotor, and a magnet. Um, actually, the, you know, as you said, electric cars do have more than three parts, but that like the, the super, super basic engines or motors um, are, are really only three parts. And then they often, they eliminate the need for a transmission or gearbox or anything like that. Uh, so that's a lot less parts that go wrong there. And then a the lot less fluids as well, right? You, you don't need oil. Um, you don't need to lubricate anything. You don't need transmission fluid. So there's, it's absolutely mind-blowing. But yeah, you're right. The, uh, the electric vehicles are much simpler uh, machines than the mechanical drivetrains. Yeah, my friend uh, is an EV owner, and she told me the only thing she put in her car in the first year she owned it was windshield wiper fluid. So that was pretty... Pretty impressive. There you go. There you go. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit more about how you work with communities to encourage EV use and EV ownership? Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, we, um, we do a lot of outreach uh, and education with, with amongst all of our programs. And they all kind of have a different target market for um, essentially like consumers. Uh, you know, the general public, we have the emotive program. And essentially what it, at the end of the day, what it realizes is that when you purchase a vehicle, it's not always a um, rational decision. If, you know, we were all very, you know, kind of rational, only looking at, you know, total cost of ownership, like perhaps maybe like the freight business would, we'd probably all be driving, you know, Honda Civics from the nineties or something like that for the longest time. But we don't see that. We, we look on the roads, we see, lots of fancy and cool vehicles and, and, you know, people may only go, you know, camping once a year, but they, 
they 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 get a four-wheel drive capable vehicle because that's that's what they like so what we really find is that your personal car choice it's an emotional decision more than anything else it, it says something about you and, and and your hobbies and what you like to do so that's kind of the level that um, the emotive program is trying to connect with with people um, and encourage them to to go to EV ownership. And they did, at least before COVID, they did a lot of test drives, and that was a really good experience to to get people that maybe have you know never seen, never they've probably heard of an EV, but they never seen one, and they've certainly never driven one, to get them behind the wheel, and for them to you know to realize that hey, you actually do have some some pretty good range, and you know. Statistically speaking, something like 90% of my trips are going to be totally within the, um, the, the, the charging capacity of the battery within like a couple hours. So there's really no reason for range anxiety or any of these things. And that's, um, that's really what we tried to do with the emotive program is to, to get out there, meet people where they're at, have them come out, have them experience the vehicles and, um, and learn more about them and just become more familiar and comfortable with them. I never made that connection to your actual name, a motive. That's 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 really interesting. One thing that that I found, uh, we recently purchased an EV, and I was just blown away that we actually don't even need a level two charger. We, it's been about six months, and we've never needed anything beyond a level one charger, or essentially just a basic plug. Because uh, when you think about it, uh, it takes about three days to charge our EV to full capacity, which would give us over well over 100 kilometers per day of use so yeah just to speak to range anxiety i think most of us very rarely go to those distances where we would need to to really even think about that it's just a couple times a year it really is um and that's that's what we find is that you know the vast majority you know 99 percent of trips are all going to be you know under the the evs range which is you know I guess now we're talking about like 500 kilometers or something like that. Um, and, you know, most of your trips, vast majority of them are going to be totally doable with, without an EV. And then the, the whole experience of just being able to charge at home uh, is one of the, like, the main advantages of an EV. You just, you know, it's like, it's like charging your phone. Can you imagine how inconvenient it would be if you had to go to the Apple store every time you want to, you know, put some more energy to charge your phone? Um, that's kind of what having a petrol car is like. You gotta you gotta go to the gas station every time you wanna uh, wanna fill it up. Versus with a uh, with an EV, it's a lot more like your phone. Electricity is pretty ubiquitous. It's pretty much you get access to it in most places, um, and conveniently you have it at home. So if you have a driveway, you just come home and plug in your EV. Totally. I'm going to visit a friend in Kelowna next weekend. And I emailed him and I'm just like, you have an outlet, right? So I can charge my vehicle over the weekend. And, you know, it's not very often you'll have a friend fill up your car for you, but he's going to, and it only cost him a couple bucks. And I mean, that's the other main advantage of, of, of the EV, right? Is that, especially here in British Columbia, we have access to such, you know, um, cheap and abundant and clean power. Um, and the, with the EVs just being so much more efficient, um, in, in terms of the, uh, you know, with, with it regenerative braking and, um, the, I mean, the internal combustion engine is, is, is pretty terrible. It's actually, you know, it creates so much heat and that's just wasted energy. It's, you know, it's 
actually a more efficient heater than it is a form of um, motor, which is kind of odd, but uh, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely so much more convenient to, to be using electricity and just being able to, you know, plug in at your, uh, at your buddy's place, for example. Totally. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of the programs and services your group offers and that people may be able to access to help inform decisions? Yeah, absolutely. So there's uh, my program, the Go Electric Fleets program. So that one really targets organizations that um, have light duty vehicles and that want to convert that fleet over from internal combustion engine vehicles over to zero emission vehicles. So we give a lot of uh, support there for uh, fleet assessments, uh, looking at your facility, any sort of electrical uh, upgrades you need to do, and then um, actually installing charging stations and infrastructure. So we got that program. And then for our garage orphans, people that, um, you know, lot, lots of people, even if they live in a single family home, they might use on-street parking or some people that live in multi-unit residential buildings, they might not always find it easy to charge. Um, so there's a program specifically targeted to, to those individuals to, um, to help them charge. Um, and that's a rebate program again, to, to, to help put in some infrastructure so that they can charge either at work for, by, from their employee, employer or um, at their, at their condo or something like that. So that, that's a pretty good one. That's called the, um, um, the EV advisor service. So we have folks that, that help people with, with, that are struggling with that. Then of course, there's also the special use vehicle incentive, which is uh, really good for, uh, let's say an organization like the district of Squamish, let's say they have some cool vehicles on the list there, like electric Zambonis. Um, they got some other pretty cool electric vehicles, all special, special use stuff, of course. Um, there's the emotive program that I previously mentioned. Um, there's the public charger program. So that's looking at those DC level three fast chargers. You were telling me, uh, Ian, that the, the level one chargers, you know, good enough for, for your needs, but let's say you are doing that road trip and you do need to, to stop somewhere for, for, for fast charge. Um, we, there's a program out there that looks to identify any gaps in BC's fast charging network across you know the highway network and even in urban areas if there's any sort of gap and and uh, facilitate some of those chargers going in and then uh, the last one it's not a program that we uh, manage personally it's managed by the new vehicle dealers dealers association but there's a point of sale rebate. So if you were to go into the dealership and it just makes sense for the dealerships to run this program. If you were to go in the dealership and you were to buy an EV that you can get a rebate right there at point of purchase. Great. And just so the audience is aware, the way I actually came to know Patrick is he has been a huge asset to the district of Squamish and has supported us. And we are doing an EV fleet assessment with funding uh, through uh, clean BC, which is, really helpful and it's going to allow us to understand how our municipal fleet operates and which vehicles are good contenders to be electrified and which ones it doesn't quite make sense yet. That's the goal right now we're in the phase where we're really trying to plan for the future of electrification. There's a lot of moving parts, a lot of things are changing. So we really want to identify those, those vehicles that can be electrified. Totally. 
Yeah, one cool one I've been reading about recently is that garbage trucks are actually great contenders for electrification because of the start-stop nature of them. The regenerative braking can really make them more efficient. And they also have a very clearly defined route. So you know how far they're going to go every day and you know the range. So it's quite easy to plan their charging. Yeah, we're starting to see a number of municipalities uh, look at um, doing some pilots right now for uh, um, electric garbage trucks for, for the exact mentions that you mentioned for the for the exact reasons that you mentioned Ian the the start the, the region is is huge that's where you get a lot of efficiencies out of um, electric uh, drivetrains you know it would be the equivalent as if you were using engine braking in a mechanical drivetrain or an ice vehicle and your gas tank would fill up uh, that's that's essentially the the equivalent of how regen works in the electric drivetrain, which is just a huge, huge benefit to um, to the efficiency of the EV. And then they, they use a ton of fuel. They pretty much use a, a liter of diesel per kilometer. It's it's pretty crazy. So if you can use a, if you can alternate to a, a cheaper fuel source such as electricity, um, that that's a win-win right there. That's a really cool way to think about regenerative braking is your gas tank filling up. I never thought about that. Dora, maybe we'll kick it back over to you for a little bit. So we've talked about transit and we've talked about electric vehicles, but another very key, and I would argue probably even our highest priority of get way to reduce our emissions related to transportation is active transportation. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the district is working on towards improving our active transportation network and getting more people to shift beyond the car? Sure, Ian. Um, so back in 2016, we developed an active transportation plan, and this lays out the future networks for walking and cycling in Squamish, as well as it has a few other recommendations related to policy and education. There's actually enough recommendations in there to keep us busy for probably the next 50 years, um, but I'm sort of somewhat joking, but it, there are a lot in there. Uh, but we're working our way through the higher priority items, and we've made some really great progress. I'm sure folks who live or are familiar with Squamish uh, can see that around town. Uh, interestingly, when the report was written, we found that about 90% of our roads in Squamish didn't have sidewalks. So that just provides some context for folks to understand how large of a challenge we have in Squamish when we're improving active transportation. Another thing that we've done is we've completed school travel plans for eight of our elementary schools. And that's just to make sure that we're prioritizing the safety of our, our safe routes to school. Um, so we combine the priorities from our Safe Routes to School program with our active transportation plan uh, when we develop our capital projects plans every year. So, yeah, I understand that, you know, a lot of what we're doing is working with the kind of the footprint that we have and the inf infrastructure that we have. But what can we do with a new development to try to get things right in the first place? Sure, yeah. So while new developments can present challenges in some ways, they also present really amazing opportunities for us. Um, so for example, many developments are required to do frontage improvements. Uh, so that's the area directly in front on the street side of their of their development. So that can mean new sidewalks or bike facilities in front of a new development. And then larger developments also sometimes need to provide community amenity contributions. Uh, and these can sometimes support active transportation improvements that's outside the immediate area of the development. So for example, the Redbridge development is going to be contributing to improving the trail system down from Valley Cliff. 
uh, when new developments are proposed, the engineering and planning departments, we work uh, carefully together to review the proposed designs and make sure that they fit with our transportation and transit networks. And does the developer foot the bill for those improvements or is that the taxpayer? So the developer is paying for anything related to their development. So if it's uh, the frontage, so that's in front of their development, kind of as part of our road, then they're paying for that, absolutely. That's why folks will often see beautiful new sidewalks in front of new developments. It's because the developer is paying for that as part of their project. Okay, so I imagine a large part of your job is being strategic and thinking about where redevelopment and development is going to happen and orienting district activities away from that to complement it. Is that true? Absolutely. So when we get new development proposals coming in, we look at those and make sure that they, what they're proposing is lining up with our plans, our future vision for the community. So that happens at a variety of stages throughout the development process, starting with a pre-application meeting. So when they first come in with kind of an idea for a development, they'll learn from us about, uh, you know, maybe there's a bus stop in front of their site or that they might need to think about it. Maybe they are going to need to provide a shelter or Maybe they need to link up a cycling path. So they're going to have to have a cycling path in front of their development. Um, and then as they progress to their development, they provide drawings, which we review and provide feedback. And we make sure that they align with the zoning and subdivision and development control bylaws, which also have some requirements uh, in them related to active transportation and transit. Okay, we're going to switch gears a little bit. Patrick, not sure if EVs actually have gears or not, but I'm still going to use the term. And I'm going to ask you both some pretty quick questions about your respective fields. Please feel free to take as little or as much time as you like to, to answer these. Dora, we'll start with you. What are some long-term plans for our transit network expansion? Yeah, so right now we're actually looking at that through our Transit Future Action Plan, which we're developing along with BC Transit. And I can't tell you exactly what's going to be in that plan because it's not finished yet, but I'll tell you some of the ideas that have been um, coming through the plan so far. Um, so we're looking to improve frequency, uh, especially on our core network, or which will soon be renamed to our frequent transit network. And that's primarily between uh, downtown and Garibaldi Village, although there may be other branches of it as well. Um, we'll be looking to uh, slightly restructure the, uh, the whole routing system, which could involve uh, a future exchange at Garibaldi Village. Currently, the only exchange we have is in the downtown area. So this could allow for a bit more flexibility in our routing and potentially allow people a bit more of an easy time getting from some areas of town, which currently are quite hard uh, to get to other areas of town. So for example, um, getting from Valley Cliff to Brackendale is not the easiest. We're hoping with some of this restructuring that will become easier. Great. Patrick, how much money can people currently get back in rebates when they purchase an EV? So I've done this math once because I wanted to maximize the rebates. Um, so essentially, if you were to read all the fine print and do everything properly, you could get three grand from the provincial uh, Clean BC point of sale rebate. You could get five grand from the federal government. And then if you're super savvy, if you can also get three to six grand from a program called Scrap It. So most people are getting $8,000 in, in rebates. But you could uh, essentially, if you pair that up with the scrap it program, you could get even more. So when we bought an EV, I was able to get six thousand dollars for our 1999 Honda Civic, which cost me twelve hundred dollars to buy, and then we were able to drive it for four years and then get a six thousand dollar rebate. So that was 
awfully good value. I really appreciated that one. Oh, so you're one of the savvy ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and to be honest, it really wasn't it really wasn't difficult. Uh, they really made it easy to do. It was just an online form, and I had to take the vehicle in. Um, the the one hiccup is that I didn't know how I had to get rid of one vehicle and then purchase the other one, and uh, I was later than I expected, and I got the vehicle in Vancouver. So I dropped the I dropped the Civic off, and I had to bike to the dealership to pick up the REV, and it took way longer than I expected. So the I was really worried that the dealership was going to be closed, and I would be left with e without either vehicle. So it was just kind of a funny active transportation story. So I don't recommend biking between the um, between the wrecker and the dealership, but lessons learned. Oh, uh, that, that's a good lesson learned to share. <laughs> yeah, I, I think most people don't need to be told that lesson. I'm a, I'm. So. I'll pass it back over to you, Dora. Uh, what is your favorite, I'll say, urban place uh, in in Squamish to bike, and why? Yeah, so I think the easy answer probably would be uh, the Corridor Trail, just because it's a great long north-south trail. It's paved. Um, and it's it's going to have more lighting really shortly too. We're working on two separate lighting projects right now, which will be completed either later in the fall or early in the new year, which will mean that the vast majority of the corridor trail will be lit, so you can bike it easily during the winter. So that would be the easy answer. But actually, it's not the true answer for me right now. My my current favorite is actually Pemberton Avenue, and we just recently installed bike lanes on Pemberton Avenue and. The difference between not having the bike lanes there and having the bike lanes there is just so huge that I think that's my new favorite spot to ride. Just every time I ride down there, I'm just super duper excited. I totally agree. I felt like it used to be like playing Frogger and now it just feels, you know, it's it's still a little slow because there's so much going on, but I, I totally agree. It's very clear and it feels very safe. Yeah, it's yeah. It almost seems impossible that it ever wasn't there before. Totally. I don't know how. Yeah, because and with all those people pulling in and out, yeah, it used to feel quite fraught for sure. Yeah. Patrick, I've heard a lot of people express concern about an EV in winter driving. Uh, are there any myths that you'd like to take the opportunity to address? For sure. Uh, I definitely see where people are coming from this. I've spent a couple of years in Alberta. And I've definitely left my cell phone or laptop or like a whole backpack with double eight batteries or whatever out in the out in the cold at you know minus twenty or whatever it gets to, and you know you go there the next morning to to pick up your backpack and every all your batteries are completely dead. You you think to yourself, okay, I've had this experience. Um, how am I ever going to get an electric car if I live in one of these environments? There's no way the battery is going to going to survive, and I kind of got two, I got one technical reason why that's not true, and then I got kind of a proof of concept. So the technical reason why it's not true is because the battery in your phone, or like let's say just like a handful of AA batteries or something like that, it doesn't have a battery management system. The electric vehicle has a, it's a large, it's a much bigger battery, and it will use some of the energy in the battery to keep it at a stable temperature, whether that's hot or cold. Batteries like to be a stable temperature all year round. So it's, it's self-managing. You don't need to worry about that. Um, and the proof is in the pudding. We look at the two uh, countries that have the highest EV adoption rates, and we're looking at Norway, gets pretty cold there, folks, and Iceland also gets pretty cold there. Um, why are they so high on the adoption curve? 
uh, really two reasons. It's not because it's cold there. Uh, even though despite it's cold there and they have real winter driving conditions, they have a really cheap source of power. And um, they also have a lot of government support in the, in the, in the terms of uh, rebates and incentives. So you can, you don't really need to worry too much about driving your EV in the winter. It will, uh, it will work. Great. Dora, can you tell us what is happening with Mamquam Road west of Highway 99? For sure. Uh, so that's one that probably everybody in Squamish has been noticing. You can't turn there when you're on the highway these days. Um, and that is uh, actually three separate capital projects that are being worked on. Um, there's a sewer project, uh, an active transportation project, and a paving project. And we decided to put them all together as they are somewhat interlinked, uh, like you dig up the ground once is the idea, and then you can put it all back together with all the new pieces. Um, but there is some timing uh, considerations. So for example, the sewer has to go in first, active transportation second, and then on, at the end you do the paving. Um, the sewer project is taking a little bit more time than we had hoped, and so that's going to push back the other projects a little bit. Um, but at the end of the day, we're going to have a fantastic facility. We're going to have uh, a protected bike lane on the north side and an on-street bike lane on the south side, which is a huge improvement from what we have previously. Um, we'll also have a sidewalk for most of the distance on the north and the south sides and an improved bus stop as well on the north side. So lots of great things coming. Um, it's just taking a little bit of time. Thanks. Patrick, can you tell the audience the best place to find comparable information about EVs, those thinking about a purchase? The place I would typically tell people to start uh, if they want to compare different EVs is the Emotive website. There's a super handy PDF you can download there. The, the team does a really good job of keeping it current, has all the range stats, has all the, um, you know, the, man, uh, the MSRPs on there, um, it actually has a picture of the vehicle so you can see what it looks like and kind of, you know, gauge the size and compare, compare you know, what, what, what suits your lifestyle. So definitely go to um, the Emotive website. Dora, can you tell us more about the South Parks route in the transit network? You bet, Ian. Um, so the South Parks route is the, is the Route 5. It's our seasonal route. So currently it only runs from sometime in June to the Labor Day weekend, although we are hoping to extend that timing. Um, and it, it does the downtown loop, and then it goes to the Adventure Center, Daryl Bay, the Sea of Sky Gondola, Chief, and Valley Drive. And the idea is to really link in that important recreation area in the south part of Squamish with the rest of the Squamish transit network. So it's helpful for folks that are recreating as well as folks that might be working down in that area. It's actually been really successful, and we're, as I said, we're hoping to uh, expand the number of months that it runs. Thank you. Patrick, can you tell the audience where to find out more about the charging network in Squamish and see what's available? Yeah, so the best resource for not only Squamish, let's say you're on a road trip or anywhere, is PlugShare. And it's, it's, it's a really handy tool because it's maintained essentially by the EV community. And as you can imagine, there's a pretty good community around EVs, and they'll let you know if something is odd about the station or if it's a bit down there's like a review and a comment section there and then also the the charging station if it's capable um of this it does send signals to say hey i'm available hey um i'm down for maintenance or hey i'm in use so uh plug share really good resource for uh finding out about available charging stations in squamish or really anywhere in canada 
One thing I've been so impressed with uh, in my very limited experience in those stations is is there's a real community around it. People are quite generous uh, with not taking up more time than they need. If they you know if they only need enough to get back to Vancouver or whatnot, they'll say, "Hey, you can unplug me after ten minutes," and and then the next person can can go in. So it's it feels very very civil, and people are pretty pretty nice about it. Absolutely. The other thing we're just finding in like terms of driver behavior is that people are not charging until they're full. They're charging as long as they need to to get to wherever they're going to be dwelling for like a long period of time. So that might be exactly you're probably already doing them a favor by uh, unplugging them 10 minutes into because they already got what they need and they want to get on the road and go to their destination anyway. Mm, that's a good point. All right, you both have been really good sports about this litany of questions, so I'll just ask you one more each. These are really tough ones. Dora, how much does it cost people 12 and under to ride the bus? <laughs> That's a tough one, Ian. Uh, <laughs> it, it's free for kids 12 and under to ride the bus. It's actually been that, like that for a number of years in Squamish, um, but the province has recently rolled that out ac uh, across the province, so now it's free across the province for 12 and unders. And it's not too expensive even after that too. If you're a student or a senior, it's $20 a month to get a bus pass. If you're for adults, it's $40. And Patrick, you're the uh, bit of an authority on this subject. Can you make a definitive statement? Are electric cars cooler than other cars? Electric cars are the coolest cars. Okay, well, you've heard it, you've heard it from the source. <laughs> thank you, uh, thank you both so much. Uh, really appreciate your time and expertise and, and passion for these subjects. That was a, a lot of really excellent information that you, you both shared. Uh, a lot of a lot of things are happening in both of these topics. I uh, really encourage you to check out our climate climate action website uh, for more information uh, specific to Squamish. We also have just are getting another shipment of bike maps, so a really helpful resource to show you all the different uh, bike specific routes uh, through town. It might give you some ideas of places uh, to go and ways to get from A to B that you hadn't thought of. Those are free and they're available at the Adventure Center. They're available at most of the bike shops and they're also available at Municipal Hall. So I encourage you to get a bike map. Okay, well, thank you again to our to Patrick and Dora, our guests. Any final comments or or things you're either of you are dying to get off your chest? I'm just excited to see folks out there on the bike trails. Totally. Uh, likewise, but knees. <laughs> <laughs> For the record, do not drive your electric vehicle on the bike trails. <laughs> totally okay. We have stickers for it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you can cut that out. <laughs> well, on that, on that, I think I'll stop recording. Thank you both. <laughs> That's a good ending.